go ahead and turn your Bible to John chapter 20. We are almost at the end. This week and next week, we will cover 20 and then the epilogue next week of the Gospel of John. Can you believe it already? This year, we have covered a significant portion, almost half of the book of John, and or, or a good portion of it. And so today we'll be in John 20, verse 11 and following. I want to begin this morning by way of illustration uh, before we get into our text. On Tuesday, January, pardon me, June 6, 1944, uh, under the command of Dwight D. Eisenhower, Allied troops began um, an amphibious invasion that would uh, come to be known as D-Day, and that was to uh, liberate uh, France from Nazi Germany. And so if you remember your American history, they landed on the beaches of Normandy. Uh, it was a costly invasion, about 10,000 uh, casualties on the Allied side, a similar um, amount on the Axis side. Um, a very costly battle, and you've probably seen this depicted in movies or in, in pictures, film, things like that. And this invasion initially resulted in a victory for the Allies. It gave them a foothold into the western part of Europe so that they would be able to make their way to Germany. If you know how things were going during the summer and going into the fall of 1944, you have the invasion of going into France. There was a southern invasion that came up um, and, and went through Italy, and then also you have on the eastern side, you had, you had Soviet Russia that had been putting pressure and was, was making uh, a foothold on the eastern side. And so from that first day on June 6, 1944, D-Day, uh, it led up to April of the next year uh, where uh, Berlin was taken, and then officially on May 8, 1945, uh, Nazi Germany capitulated, surrendered, and that's what we know as VE Day, Victory in Europe Day. And so you have from June till May of the next year, D-Day, and then you have on the other side, VE Day. And so that uh, all-out assault that began initially uh, set what was inevitable in play, uh, the conclusion of American, British, Soviet, Canadian, Australian and other combatants that ended up taking over and winning the war in Europe. We know that it didn't end the entire war. You still had Japan and we could go on and, and so forth. And so in explaining what is known as the uh, biblical concept known as the already and not yet, you've heard me refer to that in certain ways uh, in our time together, re reference that in some way last week, but I want to take a moment and I'd like to emphasize that even more. One theologian, his name is Oscar Kuhlman, uh, had said, the way we should think about Christianity and the timeline that we find ourselves on is kind of like D-Day and V-E Day. Christ has come the first time. He has defeated sin by dying, defeating my sin, your sin, resurrecting from the dead, conquering death, defeating the devil and his plans. And he did that to accomplish God's plan of redemption. That was the initial victory. But yet on the other side, we know that Christ will return. That Christ is going to come back, right? 
And at the end, he is going to vanquish his enemies. He's going to defeat the devil once and for all and throw him in the lake of fire. If you read Revelation 20, that if, if you want a reason for hope, if you find yourself without hope, read the epic story that you have in Revelation 19 and 20. It reminds you how things will turn out in the end. And so the victory that began at the cross and resurrection, it's kind of like D-Day. It inaugurated the inevitable that would happen, leading to the ultimate victory when Christ returns. I, I saw someone uh, make a comment last week in the, on, on Monday and said, you know how we were really emphasizing Resurrection Sunday, Easter weekend? Guess what? Shocker. We're going to do it again next Sunday, and that's what we're doing today, and we do it every single Sunday, is we remind ourselves that we live in light of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, right? And so the reason why I tell you this, that Christ's work has inaugurated a new age that has already begun but has not yet been completed, friends, I tell you that to remind you that you and I would live in the right kind of expectation. You go to a funeral and you hear the pastor say, oh, death, where is your sting? I find myself going, I don't know about you, but it stings pretty bad right now, right? Uh, or you find yourself hearing good news and yet you deal with bad news. And so we find ourselves in the already but not yet. We understand that life is not lived with background music on constantly. Like when you watch a movie or a TV show and you see the guy walking down the street and, 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 that, and that music gives a certain vibe that everything is good. We don't live that kind of life. That's not real life. We know that this world is leading towards de decay and that creation groans. We talked about this. But we also understand that though Christ has come through his death, his dying, and his rising, when we feel the sting of death, we know that we are the kind of people that are not without hope. We deal with the work that Christ has done. We live in that victory knowing that it hasn't fully been consummated. Same is true for disease, famine, war, pain, suffering, heartache, depression, destruction. And so I'm telling you this, friends, so that you would have the right kind of expectation, that you are not surprised by the suffering in this world, but you know that you don't live without hope because what has happened Initially, as Christ has come and he has conquered the beachhead of the devil, and yet he will come back, and in the end of the story, you know that there will be the ultimate defeat over the devil himself. Having this concept of the already but, but not yet helps us walk into our passage this morning in John 20, 11, because you understand that the disciples haven't fully worked this out. In fact, they don't even believe in the resurrection yet, but as they come to believe in it, you begin to put the dominoes down and you go, oh, I understand this new age that we're living in. I have the right kind of expectation. Here's what I know is going to be coming my way. And so that's what I want for us. As we look at our passage this morning, we're going to look at how Christ appears to Mary Magdalene, how he appears to the disciples, how he appears also to Thomas, and so to one woman in her grief, others in their fear, and another man in his skepticism or doubt. How is the good news of the resurrection good news really in this present age we find ourselves in? Let me read for us verse 11. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. Last time we saw Mary, 
She had been to the tomb initially, went back to tell the disciples, and now she has returned. And, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. And they said to her, woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. And having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? And supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, verse 17, do not cling to me for I have not yet ascended to the father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my father and your father, to my God and your God. And Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord and that he had said these things to her. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, these words that we just sang a moment ago, what a foretaste of deliverance, how unwavering our hope, Christ in power resurrected as we will be when he comes. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the resurrection because now we have the eager expectation that that foretaste sets us up for what will come. It gives us an unwavering hope. Lord, as we live right now between the already and not yet, in this new age that has been dawned, Lord, let us live like Christians who are confident in the hope that we have in Christ. Lord, that, that is what we need. We cannot do this on our own. We need your spirit to come now and do his work through your word. Help us. In Christ's name, amen. In the moment before the one that we just read, Peter had just left the empty tomb with John. And if you recall, in verse 8, John had had the light bulb moment go off. He had looked at the linen garments. He had looked at the face cloth folded up. And he went, ah, I understand the implication. But Mary had not understood yet. In fact, she had still thought that grave robbers... Jesus' enemies had stolen the body. And so who is this woman, Mary? Mary of Magdala, who has returned to the, womb, the, the tomb and stands outside in her grief weeping. There's a lot of popular depictions. You may have in your mind popular depictions of who Mary of Magdala is, and yet it's actually not in the Bible. Okay, so let me just give you a couple. Uh, perhaps you've heard, there's, there's that book that came out early 2000s. Dan Brown, right? Da Vinci Code, right? And said that Jesus was a, uh, that Mary had a secret romance with Mary of Magdala. It's not in your Bible. Or that she was a reformed prostitute. Maybe you've heard, heard of that. Um, that view, by the way, doesn't become popular until the sixth century. That's not in your Bible that she was a reformed prostitute. We don't have clear evidence of that. But here's what we actually know. If you go to Luke 8, 2, uh, that passage tells us about Mary. This is the most color that we get. And it says that she had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. And specifically, she had seven demons that had gone out of her. So then she became a traveling companion with Jesus, 
Her name is mentioned just 12 times in the Bible, most of them having to do with the text that's right in front of us. Uh, Another passage in John 19, uh, she was one of the, the few people that were still remaining at Golgotha who saw Jesus die on the cross. And so this woman who had been delivered of so much had been a faithful companion of Christ. And again, if you remind yourself, she has now gone to the tomb and she has images in her head of a brutal execution that has taken place. And she is in incredible grief. Why can't these people just let this man rest in peace? And so she shows up, looks again into the empty tomb and sees two angels standing or sitting on either side of where Christ had been laying. Uh, some people have actually looked at that and tried to see imagery in that. For example, is this, a, is this a, a, a moment that points back to the Ark of the Covenant where you have the, you know, the two angels on either side of the covenant uh, of the Ark and in the middle is the mercy seat. And so maybe there's a, some symbolism here that, that Christ is the one who is the ultimate fulfillment of that mercy seat, that he has paid the atonement for our sins, perhaps. But nonetheless, these, these angels look at the woman and say, why are you weeping? And she says what we know her to say. They have taken my Lord. I don't know where they've laid him. And so this is a scenario. She's looking into the tomb. She's standing outside of it. She's talking to the angels. And then she gets a sense that somebody's right behind her. So she turns. And as she turns, who is it? Perhaps it's the gardener. She looks at him and says, sir, if you have carried him away tell me where you've laid him, and I will take him away. I will take him away. And then this man speaks to her, supposedly being the gardener, and he must have spoken in his Galilean accent. And when he spoke that one word, she knew immediately who it was when he said, Mary, Mary. And it makes you think of John 10. You just can't help yourself if you know the gospel of John. The sheep hear his voice. And he calls his own sheep by name. And he leads them out. When he has brought them out all his own, he goes before him and the sheep follow him for they know his voice. The most important word that you know, most powerful word that you know, is your own name. And so when someone knows it or doesn't know it, that's a very powerful thing. And so though for the Christian he may feel or she may feel outcast, downtrodden, lonely, and overlooked. The Christian who is a sheep to the shepherd, the good shepherd of Psalm 23, of John 10, looks at all of us this morning, and he calls Mary, and he calls you and I by name. But now thus says the Lord who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name, and you are mine. And so the woman responds, and she says, teacher. That's how she knows him, teacher. Jesus says, don't cling to me. I haven't yet gone to my father, but I want you to go back to my disciples, and I want you to say, I have seen the Lord, that you've seen me, and all that I've told you. So that's exactly what she does. That's our first story. I want to look at just a few things, point this out to you. There's a million-dollar question that uh, people have looked at when they've, they've read this passage, and it's this. When Mary finally sees Jesus, Jesus, he says, don't cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. And the question is, 
Why would Jesus say that? Given the fact that just a couple passages later, he's going to look at Thomas and he's going to say, hey, you, you, don't, you don't believe I'm really here? Go ahead and touch. Touch, touch where, the, where the nails had been. Touch my side. Why is it that he says to Mary, don't cling to me, but he says to Thomas, go ahead. You initially might think maybe there's something about his resurrected body, right, that can't be touched, but yet he invites others to do that. So what's, what's going on here? Perhaps the issue is not that Jesus is being inconsistent with instructions that he gives to people. Perhaps it's not that he's being rude to Mary, but it has more to do with her misguided focus and approach toward him. Namely, perhaps I must hold on to him before he disappears again. The focus is that she does not, the focus is on the physical, and she does not realize that a new age has dawned, that Christ may not be found merely and only physically in one place at one time, but through the spirit of Jesus, we may have his presence with us always. One author puts it this way, what needs to stop is not a particular act of touching, but a misplaced reliance on the physical presence of Christ. The body of Jesus and his location need to be redefined in light of the death, resurrection, and ascension, as well as the coming Holy Spirit. Don't cling to me, Mary, and only focus on my physical appearance, but understand that I'm returning to the Father, and when I return, you will have the Spirit. Understand the words, he is not here, he has risen, and how profound that is. Don't lament, but see that the Spirit is coming. More on the Spirit in a moment. Then you see the grace. And the grace comes in how he defines the disciples. He says, but go to my, what he calls them, go to my who? Go to those bunch of cowards that abandoned me in the garden. Go to those, those, those guys who couldn't, who couldn't even stand up for a moment. He says, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my father and your father, to my God and your God. And it's an incredible thought that Jesus redeems even them. And so Jesus, our older brother, has paved the way so that those men and you and I can be adopted into the family of God. Have you ever thought of Jesus really as your older brother? You have the Father who is in heaven, but you have an older brother through his blood that has given you the ability to be adopted into his family. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a virgin, born under the law to redeem those who are under the law so that we might receive adoption, adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son. There he is, the spirit, crying, Abba, Father. And so you are no longer slaves, but sons and daughters. That includes you two ladies. And then also an heir through God. And so the reason, though, that we can cry out, Abba, Father, and call him by name is thirdly, because he calls us by name. And so that's the most powerful word that she knows, her name, and Jesus knows it. Again, though you may feel abandoned, overlooked, and no one sees you, not the Messiah. The Messiah has called you by name. He is yours and you're his. And so that's the first appearance. The resurrected Christ speaks to those that he knows are his by name, and he can overcome grief with but a word, indicating that he knows who we are. Jesus then appears to the disciples, and he, this is what we get from John in verse 19. 
On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and he stood among them and he said, peace be with you. I, I laugh at this verse and I'll tell you why in just a moment, but here's what's happened. Mary and John have gotten it, and, but somehow when they've gone back to the disciples that night, they're still behind locked doors. It hasn't clicked yet. You can imagine what's been going through these, these disciples' minds. All of them minus Judas and Thomas, by the way. Judas, who had taken his own life, and, John, and Thomas, who was not present. And you can imagine the state of mind that they're in since the garden. If this is what these maniacs did to Jesus, what in the world are they going to do to us if they find out where we are? might go through their mind. You can picture the despair and the embarrassment. This was supposed to be the moment where he became the king, but then he was killed, and it wasn't like he was just taken out. It, it was embarrassing and humiliating. It was dehumanizing in the most disgraceful way possible. He wasn't just put on a cross. He had been mutilated beforehand. I can't help but think in this moment how many people have been offended by Mel Gibson's Passion of the Christ. You remember when that movie came out a few years ago. I have since read books talking about how how awful that that must be that you would portray that happening to Christ that way. Perhaps that's because it was awful and that's the way it was portrayed. Perhaps it still doesn't even do it justice. And so these men are going, what, do we have to, what in the world do we have to show for the last three years? This is supposed to be the moment. We tied ourselves to a movement, and now, it, now we got nothing to show for it. And so they're sulking, and perhaps as they're sulking, they're thinking of those words that Jesus had said and that we looked at several weeks ago. He had said to us, a little while, and you will see me no longer, and again, a little while, and you see me. What in the mess could he have meant by that now that he's dead? Sorrow, despair, hopelessness, and humiliation. Fear. It's the human kind of response you would expect. And then the narrative gives that startling statement. Jesus arrives. His resurrected body shows up through a locked door. And he says, peace be with you. And it is, I have to admit to you, I find this to be so humorous. Because Luke elsewhere says they were startled and frightened and thought that they had seen a spirit. And so if you saw Casper, the friendly ghost, show up to you when you're behind a locked door, he might as well go, boo, right? And he says, peace. And it elicits the exact opposite response, peace be with you. And he shows them his scars, and once they realize it's Jesus, they get a, get a grip. We're told that they were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus says a second time, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And verse 22 tells us that when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Oh my goodness. So much here, but we can only focus on a couple things. So here's the first. Let us see this morning the peace and the scars that Jesus gives us in this passage. And so this is no mere shalom greeting. This is far more than a greeting. It is loaded with meaning. And so Jesus' shalom on Easter evening is the complement of the tetelestai. It is finished on Good Friday afternoon on the cross. For the peace of reconciliation has been imparted unto these men. 
And so when Jesus says peace, he can say that because he is the spotless, sacrificial lamb that we sing about, pray to, read about. And so he's the sacrificial lamb that has won our pardon for us. As fulfilled Isaiah 53, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement or the punishment that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. Friend, if you are without peace this morning, quiet your restless soul and be reminded that your standing in Christ does not change the fact that the tomb is empty. Does not change. Your status is the same. The tomb is still empty. He was a sacrificial lamb in your place. Pardon for sin and the peace that endureth. This is what we sing. Thine own dear presence to cheer and to guide. Strength for today and bright hope for tomorrow. Blessings all mine with 10,000 beside. When you move from this declaration of peace and then you see his scars, man, look at your own life and what's in front of you. What happens? I find the older that I get, I just celebrated my birthday yesterday. Every single year, life brings more challenges and you end up getting more scars. That's just the way the life goes. And many of us can have borne scars on the outside and many of us have scars as well on our hearts too. But here's the good news. It's that though we may gain scars in this life, we have peace because of the scars that Christ has borne for us in his life. His scars lead to our peace and our scars lead to his glory. And so thank goodness for his scars. It gives us the ability in the already and not yet that though we may bear our own scars and our grief and our sadness and our fear and the things we go through, we know there is coming a moment where these scars will fade away when we stand before the presence of our Lord. The second thing, though, is the commission, how he commissions the whole, these guys with the Holy Spirit and the mission. He says, peace be with you as the Father sent me, even so I am sending you. And again, you go, really? A bunch of cowards. And he stands in front of them, and it's almost like he sidesteps that. I know who you are. I know that you were unfaithful. I know that you didn't, you didn't do what you were supposed to do. And yet, I'm commissioning you as the Father sent me, even so I am sending you. And it makes you think of the Great Commission. Some have looked at this passage and have gone, this is John's version of Matthew 28's Great Commission. Go and make disciples of all nations. We know this, right? Baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you, and so on. And so Jesus takes unfaithful men, turns them around, and then says, I am commissioning you, you fearful people, to do the work that I have started and you will continue to do. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. Oh my, John 20, 22. This poor little verse, take a moment, let's look at this. This poor little verse has been so abused and mistreated, in, especially over the last century, that whole unfortunate movements have been propped, upon, prop, propped up on this verse. So let's take a moment. I want to briefly consider what Jesus is doing here and give this uh, poor verse the tender care that it needs. The, the trouble has been that when people have looked at what Jesus does here in John 20 and he breathes on them and gives them the Holy Spirit, they go, how does that work with the book of Acts? Because I thought... Correct me if I'm wrong here. I thought when I read the, my Bible, the Holy Spirit doesn't come to the book of Acts, Acts 2, when the Spirit falls to them like tongues of fire above their head. They go and proclaim that Jesus is Lord. We know this story, right? Okay? 
And then yet it's happening over here. How does that work out? Is John describing Acts 2 in his own way? Is he simply... This is simply an acted out parable that Jesus is doing. The breath, the spirit, is that what's happening? Or are these two different receptions? One, you receive the Holy Spirit at conversion for salvation and then later for the work of ministry. That's, is that what's happening? What do we do? I've been looking forward to talking about this. And I want to bring this up to you because I want us to avoid a false teaching that exists in our culture, our Christian culture, that can inappropriately categorize Christians according to the haves and the have-nots. Some people have looked at this passage where the Holy Spirit falls on the disciples initially, and then you have in Acts 2, and I've seen that as a template. You've seen Pentecostals will do this, Charismatics, some Charismatics will do this, and they'll say, this is a template. And it kind of goes like this. When you first become a Christian, you receive a flame, the Holy Spirit, John 20, 22. But later on, when you are, oh man, baptized with the Holy Spirit, let's go, Um, Acts 2, like the way the disciples were, then you begin to have the miraculous gifts, then you begin speaking in tongues. And so that's how you'll see some Pentecostals will will work out and use this as a template for that. Does that make sense? You're tracking with me that you have John 20, 22, flame, and then you have Acts 2, bonfire, and that's seen as as a template in that way. And yet the problem, there's a major obvious problem here, and it's this. Remember, I said that we live in the already but not yet. These men were transitioning from the old covenant age to the new covenant age. They were living at a unique point in history, a point of transition where Christ was leaving and he was sending the Spirit. While Christ imparts the Spirit on them in a very unique way, the normative way for you and I, unlike the disciples who saw Jesus leave and the Holy Spirit come, we live in this age over here where Christ has left. And when we believe in the Spirit, we are baptized with the Holy Spirit. And so here's the point that I want to make. Just because something is descriptive in Scripture doesn't mean it's always prescriptive when it's talking about a narrative. For example, just because you don't like someone doesn't mean you should go take a slingshot and hit them in the forehead with it and knock them over, okay? Just because you see someone who is blind doesn't mean you should spit on their eyes and try to make them see. You understand? And so what is John doing here? The context, the narrative helps us understand. And he is simply telling us this. Jesus is leaving and the Spirit is arriving and Jesus is giving the Spirit to indwell in the disciples. That's it. Don't make more of it, as others have done. And so, friend, I want you to know this. When you believed in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you didn't just get some of the Spirit. You got all of the Spirit in that moment. And you are waiting throughout the rest of your life as you see the reality of when you first believed, right? When you first believed of what really lives within you becoming manifest as you go throughout your sanctification process. You get all the Spirit at once. All the Spirit at once. And so you were baptized fully with the Spirit when you believed once and for all, just as you have been baptized by water when you stood in front of the church and you entered into the family of God. You did that once and once only. And so listen, Christ has come, and in this new age that the empty tomb has inaugurated, he has come to take those who are fearful 
and give them peace with his scars. And he has come to give them everything that they need to do his missional work. And he's given them the spirit. I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. John 14. And now it's here. Last passage. The appearance of Thomas. Now Thomas, one of the 12 called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. And so the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and the place my finger into the mark of the nails and, my, and place my hand into his side, I'm never, ever, ever, ever going to believe. Verse 26, eight days later, you want to talk about fear of missing out? Man, what a day to miss. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again and Thomas was with them. And although the doors were locked, they're still locked this time. How about that? Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands. And put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. By the way, that last sentence there, that's for you and I. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. And so Thomas has missed the big moment. Man, what a day to miss. And he didn't believe the disciples when they said, we've seen the Lord. He said, I need the evidence. And the truth is that because of this story, and it's, it's given here, history hasn't been very kind to poor Thomas. Um, just known as doubting Thomas, right? Uh, and yet the truth is, I think that we shouldn't single out Thomas because they were all this way. Uh, Mary didn't believe until she saw the gardener in, in the garden at the empty tomb. And the disciples didn't believe Mary. And they didn't believe anything until he showed up on Easter Sunday in the evening. Thomas was not the exception in his skepticism. And yet Christ arrives on the scene and he gives this man exactly what he had desired. Thomas did not do anything to make him worthy of Christ's condescension to come down and meet his proofs and what he asked for. But yet Jesus does it anyways. It just strikes me how he condescends. Christ knows what's in each man and he gives them what they need. I've been sharing stories with you about my, my time in graduate school, so here's another. I think I'm almost done with graduate school stories, so here's the last one. Uh, I had gone to Southwestern in the fall of 2014, but before that, I decided on going to the school because of the fact that it was the logical choice to do. I had looked at what the school offered. I had gone to a, a conference, again, another one of those apologetics kind of conferences, and I went, wow, I can actually keep my, I don't have to stick my head in the sand. I can keep my intelligence. These people have thought through the questions I've thought through. This seems like a wise thing to do. And so I ended up going to the school. A, a couple of years later, I had some friends that I had graduated with. One of them was, was actually here a few months back. His name was Katori. And at the time, I had called my friends uh, traveling nomads for Jesus. They loved Jesus, super passionate about Jesus, and yet they had no direction in their life. And I had kept saying to them, friend, a call to ministry is a call to prepare. Don't waste this time, get ready. Come join me in school. And so I had a few of them come for my birthday. Um, I had 
totally ulterior motives. I had set up a time for one of the guidance, not guidance counselors, but one of the, the recruiters at the school to meet with them. There was a conference that was happening. I, I just, I, I wanted to butter them up a little bit. And so Katori, who was, who was with us, uh, and I thought he's the one I'll be able to get, could have cared less at the time. By the way, he went on to Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, got his master's, super proud of him uh, later. But there was another one of my friends, Tarek, dear friend. And uh, he was pretty skeptical, uh, but he was enjoying what he was seeing. And I said, you should really think about it. And so the conference began and it was led by a guy named J.P. Moreland, great uh, apologetics guy, defender of the Christian faith and all that. And um, at the beginning of the conference, they had said, there's prospective students here. If you're interested, fill out a kind of the way we fill out a connection card, fill out a card and turn that in. And at the end of the conference, we'll give a $1,000 scholarship to anyone who would be interested in coming here. And so Tarek looked at me and he said, if God wants me to go to school here, um, he's gonna give me that $1,000 scholarship. So I'll put my, my name down and I'll, and I'll put that in the, in the pile. And I go, that's so stupid. That's so, that's so putting the fleece out and all of that. What do you, whatever. And so we went into the conference, had a great time. At the end of it, he, I said, please think logically through this friend. And, and he says, Lord, Lord's got this. And so they start saying the names at the end. They pick out one name, Susie, John, whatever. And they get about three, through three or four names. And I look at my friend, Tarek, and I go, it's going to be okay. Still consider about doing this. And they pick out the last name. And the, and the guy says, Terich Antoine. And I put my head in my hands and I go, you have to be kidding me. It's actually my friend's name. And so Terry stands up in front of all of them and he goes, I just, and he told, what he had done, he explained that to everybody. And he says, I just want you all to know, um, because the Lord has shown me a sign, I'm quitting my job. I'll see you all in the fall. And so that's exactly what he did. And he has since graduated. And I'm super proud of him. But in the years since, as we've looked back on what had happened to him versus what had happened to me to get our different routes to the same place, we looked at it and we didn't really focus on the wisdom of us and what we were doing, but on the fact that God met Tarek right where he was at. He had no intention of going to school there, but God in his mercy and grace, he condescended down to my friend's level. In fact, me and my skepticism where I was living in my own world at that time, if that would have happened to me, I would have said, ah, coincidence. I would have been starting to do the odds. That's the kind of game I would have been doing. For me, I had to see the logical route at the time. And so here's the point. God knew how to meet me, and he knew how to meet my friend Tarek to accomplish in our lives what we needed to push us on to the next step. He does the same thing for, for us. He did the same thing for Thomas. And I want you to know, friend, I know there's those of us who are asking major questions in our lives, some major, some small. And yet every single time when God condescends and goes down to meet you right where you're at, maybe not in the way that you think he should meet you, but in the way that he knows how to meet you, it is an act of his mercy and of his grace. You do not deserve it. And yet he reveals himself just as you need him to do in the way that he will do it to accomplish his purpose. Don't stop seeking, keep knocking, and he will arrive at just the right time. John ends and he says, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe in Jesus Christ, 
the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. The evangelistic component, once again, the whole purpose of the book of John, the miracles, the stories, the, the teachings that Jesus gives, his death, resurrection, it is all so that you would believe. Here's the thing about the Christian faith, friends. It is stubbornly outward focused. A church that is inward in its thinking and not outward in its mission is a church that has missed what God has called them to do. And so friends, let me offend you potentially if I need to. If you call yourself a Christian and yet you could care less about seeing lost people being taken out of the clutches of hell and brought into the hands of Christ, if you call yourself a Christian but you don't care about lost people, you likely are not a Christian. Because only Christians go, man, let me tell you about the reason for the hope that is within me. Only Christians do that. If there's no desire to share that reason for that hope, it might be because there is no hope. If you can't say, brother, I want you to have the same joy that I have, and I gotta share it with you, right? It might be because you don't have that joy. If you can see baptisms happen, new members brought into God's church, hands go up for salvation, and yet you go, eh, I'm glad somebody else is doing that. Perhaps you need to reevaluate what is on the inside. And your state of heart does not change the fact that Jesus' words are any less true. It doesn't make the grave not empty. That doesn't make the extension of his nail-pierced hands for you, who might be indifferent towards him. It doesn't make his nail-pierced hands extended towards you any less real. Believe and have life in the name of the one whom I have seen healed in that name, those people healed in that name, who I've seen darkness come out of people in that name, and because of that name, I've seen people come from, from spiritual death into life. And so he has come. The resurrected Christ appears to all in their grief, and his healing work compels us to spread the good news. The resurrected Christ appeals to us, appears to us and quells our fears, and then he calls us to be on mission to go into the world. The resurrected Christ appears to us in our skepticism, meets us exactly where we're at, and then he tells us to believe so that we would have life in his name, yet again, even for many of us today. And so know who that resurrected Christ is for us, the one who has already come, and he has overtaken the beaches of hell. And the one who lives with us in this present moment that has not yet been completed. But the one who will, when he returns, he will defeat the enemy once and for all. So let's live in this present moment, friends, as we do so know that we have hope in the one who has the name of all names and yet calls us by name. Let's pray. We hope you've enjoyed today's message. If you would like to know more about Bethesda Church, you can check us out on the web by going to our website, which is BethesdaMB.org. That's Bethesda, M as in Mary, B as in boy, .org. Or check us out on Facebook by searching for Bethesda Church of Huron. Have a blessed day.